Good morning. It is good to be. Boy, you're kind of scattered all over here. This isn't COVID anymore, is it? Anyway, it's good to see you. Barbara is not with me today. Barbara, my wife, is in Ohio. She's babysitting three grandsons, although they they were a little old for being uh, babysit, so she probably wouldn't want to call it that. Uh, one's 16, one's 15, and one's 12. But uh, my youngest daughter wanted to go on vacation. She's a teacher. Her spring break's different than her kids' spring break. So her and her husband took a few days off and asked mom to come and watch the kids for her. So that's what's happening there. This is, uh, I think since I was here last, I have had cataract surgery. That was back in November. So I no longer need glasses. So in case you don't recognize me, it's kind of the Clark Kent Superman thing, you know. I may not be able to recognize the difference. Uh, isn't that kind of a silly thing? You just put on glasses and nobody knows who he is. Anyway, it, uh, it's kind of nice not to have glasses anymore. I keep preaching for them every once in a while and sometimes even push them up on my face, but I don't need them at all. So that's a, that's a good thing. The uh, legislature is working on the budget this week. The election last fall was uh, what we kind of expected, except... I thought uh, Lee Zeldin would do better. He uh, did put a scare into Kathy Hochul, and, uh, but she did win, so we, we have her for four years, barring some intervention. Uh, the legislature is two to one, Democrats to Republicans. So that means the chairman of both houses are, the leader of both houses is a Democrat. The chairman of all committees are Democrats. The construction of the committee is in proportion to the representation in the body. So in the Senate and in the House, it's two to one. So it's two to one Democrats, two Republicans on every committee in the legislature. So you kind of imagine it's a, it's a pretty much a set deal. I mean, we're, they're pretty well set, except the Democrats are not getting along with each other. There are two groups now, and they're kind of getting distinguished between a group that's, I would call liberal, the media would say moderates, and then progressives. They're farther to the left. And uh, Kathy Hochul submitted a budget that's due this Friday. April 1st is when the new fiscal year begins. April 1, April Fool's Day. I always thought that was kind of a good day for the budget to start. They, uh, they may be late. They sometimes are, but the negotiations are going on right now. The progressives want to spend more money than Kathy Hochul. Hers is... $227 billion, and there's a bunch of stuff in there that's really totally waste. Uh, we are spending a lot of money on global warming, and that's, there's a lot, of, a lot of money being spent, just tons of money being spent both on the federal and on the state level to combat global warming. I have two questions about global warming. Number one, is it real? And I don't think so. And number two, if it is, are we responsible? Is there something we can do to fix it? And I don't think that's true either. So I think in both cases, it's you know, much to do about nothing. We as Christians believe in stewardship. You should be a good steward of the environment. We're certainly in favor of that. But that is what's happening. The uh, progressives want to spend quite a bit more, $5 billion or so. The two houses are different. Um, Kathy Hochul submitted her budget about six, seven weeks ago. And then about two weeks ago, both houses submitted their budget, which differ somewhat. 
and now they're negotiating, trying to decide what's, what's going to happen in the budget. So that's been the main business of the legislature and will be until they get it settled. They've been late before, um, and that could happen, but uh, spring break's coming pretty quick, and so they take two weeks off of that. So I think they'll try to get it done before then. On the federal level, um, we, we've already passed the spending cap or debt limit. Uh, they set that every once in a while. It's $31.4 trillion. And we've already blew, blown by that a month ago. And they're kind of maneuvering things, getting things taken care of. But they, what they'll end up doing is they'll raise the debt limit and we'll, we'll be borrowing more money. Inflation's continuing to be a problem. Um, you're aware of it. Every time you go to the grocery store, things are costing more. Why? Well, there's government spending too much money, government's printing too much money, and then there are shortages of various things because of the aftermath of COVID, and so prices go up, and that's what's been going on. Uh, we have the highest inflation we've had in uh, 40 years or so. So that's kind of where we're at. The world is a mess. <laughs> I don't have to tell you that. You already are aware of that probably. But, uh, you know, God's still on the throne. And he's still working out his plan, his program, and it's right on schedule. Nothing, nothing is delaying it. But we do see uh, as some of these things happen, we get more of an appetite to go to heaven, don't we? And uh, to have all those trials and things over. I have been here a number of times. I thought I'd do something different this morning in Sunday school. Uh, I took a class on biblical leadership at Maranatha Baptist Bible College a couple years ago. And as I was thinking about what to share today, uh, this kept coming up on leadership. You are a leader in some way. You all have a sphere of influence. Uh, you're a leader in your home. If you're a father or mother, you certainly have leadership responsibilities. If you're an older brother or sister, then you have some leadership responsibilities there. If you're a teacher, certainly there's leadership. If you're a manager or in a company. So all of us are leaders in some ways. And... For the project for that class, instead of taking one of the positive examples, and there are many in the Bible of good leaders, I, did, I decided to take a bad leader. And what went wrong? I think we can learn some things from him that really are important. You know, the Bible not only tells us the stories of Israel, it, uh, our histories usually glorify the heroes, but the Bible is just very honest about heroes and tells us their faults. Uh, you find only a couple of people in the Bible where there's nothing negative said about them or no mistakes ever made. Um, and thank God for you and I. I wouldn't want my story up in the Bible, would you? Uh, my mistakes. But uh, I think we can learn some things from, from old King Saul. So I'm going to sit over here, I think. If you can turn the lights down. Whoops. My knees are still acting up. Somebody asked about my back. But it's been the knees, it's been the problem. Back wax up once in a while, too. So let's think about uh, success or failure. All of us want to be successful as leaders. Nobody sets out to be a failure. Uh, certainly King Saul didn't set out to be a failure, but that is what happened. The children of Israel had been in the land now for some time. The period of the judges has gone by. Samuel's the last of the judges. Samuel appoints his two sons to be judges. Uh, they do not walk in his ways. The people become very discouraged and finally come to him and said, we want a king. Uh, you're old, Samuel. 
and it's time. Your sons don't work, walk in your ways. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. It grieved uh, Samuel, but God said, no, it's, it's okay. I want you to, to fulfill their request. And so Saul is the man that's elected. His story begins really in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and it's quite a description. It says, now there was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, a son of Abel, the son of Zeraz, the son of Bechorath, the son of, <laughs> aren't those Hebrew names fun to pronounce? Anyway, we'll go on. A Benjamite, a mighty man of power, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man, goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders upward, he was higher than any of, his, of the people. So Saul is from a good family background. He, his father was a mighty man, which indicates he was a warrior, um, have some influence. Uh, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He is described as being a goodly young man, which would indicate uh, appearance. He, he, he looked good. He was handsome. And he's tall. So he's tall, dark, and handsome. Uh, he fits the description uh, this is a good-looking guy. Now, there's a couple problems. One is he's from the wrong tribe. He should have, the king should come from the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, remember, it says in Genesis. And that's not true. He's from Benjamin. But from the appearance standpoint, he looks good. Unfortunately, we select a lot of politicians as leaders based on their looks. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the Nixon-Kennedy debate on TV. Now, we had black and white TVs during that time. I was pretty young, but I remember seeing it. Kennedy got advisors and told him what color shirt to wear, what kind of makeup to put on. Nixon said, no, I'm not going to do any of that makeup. Nixon, during the debate, was sweating. He looked bad. Uh, Kennedy was young and handsome. Uh, people that heard the debate on the radio only said that Nixon won the debate. But Kennedy was elected primarily because of television, people saying he's good looking. Dwayne Motley was on Long Island one day speaking to a ladies group and he was warning them about a politician. And they said, oh, but he's so handsome. Well, you know, policies are, are, are more important than, than uh, even personalities or, or looks. But here's, here's Saul, he's, man, he fits the bill. He looks like a king. And so we find something of his foundation, his calling, first of all. Uh, God clearly identifies this is the man that is to be the next king of Israel, the first king of Israel. Tomorrow about this time, he tells Samuel, I will send a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him a certain captain over my people Israel that he may save the people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come unto me. So Saul has basically one job. His main job is to save the people of Israel from the Philistines. That's basically it. Uh, every leader is called to do certain things, certainly moral things and just that. But that was the main thing, was you're to save the people from the Philistines. The next day, sure enough, Saul comes and God identifies this is the one. So Samuel anoints him. He took a vial of oil and anointed him over the head and kissed him and said, 
It is because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance. Now, immediately, Saul is, is, is puzzled by all of this. He wasn't expecting to be anointed king. He was looking for lost, lost animals. But here he is, he's, he's anointed. But his calling is very solid. And the spirit of the Lord came upon thee, will shall come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and thou shalt return to another man. So uh, God anoints him as king, not only symbolically with oil, but also uh, spiritually. He receives the spirit of God and, and is able to prophesy and worship with a school of the prophets, a group of the prophets. So he's getting a good start. His charge, uh, Deuteronomy 17, gives a charge for all the kings of Israel. All the kings of Israel were supposed to write out the law. Uh, so that'd be quite a task. But the idea was they were to write it so it would be on their heart as well as in their head. Uh, it's important to not only know the word of God, it's important to believe the word of God. It has to be in your heart. And that was part of what the king was supposed to do. And there were other restrictions on the king. They were spelled out in Deuteronomy 17. He is confirmed as king. And Samuel said to all the people, See that ye, see ye him whom the Lord hath chosen. There is none like him among the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. That's the expression that's still used in England. Uh, now with King Charles, they will say, God save the king. Uh, before his mother's death, it was God save the queen. So the people have a choice. This is how it worked. The, the king served by the will of the people as well as the will of God. There was an acceptance. So the people said, yes, this is the one we want as our king. So there's some question still about his, um, whether he could do it or not. But he starts out well with the battle of the Ammonites. Um, Jabesh Gilead is, is surrounded by enemies. They send word out. Uh, Saul's back taking care of animals, and he, he realizes it's his responsibility to do something. So he, he sends out word to all of Israel, come unto me and we'll battle. And he wins. And what he does, he, everyone says, boy, we got a good king. He won the victory. He's the one that won we have a tremendous victory. So there's a confirmation in his early calling. So there's no question on that. Now, we can think a little bit about his foundation. What, what keys did he have in his life that should have made him successful? Well, number one was his calling, but number two would be his counselor. Uh, Samuel is an old man. Uh, he's still active. He's still traveling some from Ramoth. Uh, but he's got an advisor, a counselor, somebody that can help him when he doesn't know what to do. Um, but it's not too long until he begins to, to show some weaknesses that really become his downfall. Uh, the first one is, is impatience. At the Battle of Michmash, in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, he's told to wait for Samuel Samuel come and offer the sacrifice, then go to battle. But Samuel delays his coming, and Saul gets impatient, and he goes ahead and, and says, well, the people force me. I, I, I don't have any choice. Uh, they'll come down. The Philistines are going to come down. The people are going to leave me. I've got to do something. So he goes ahead and offers the sacrifice. He had no business doing that. He is not a priest. Only the priest could offer a sacrifice under the law. So he's totally out of line for what he's doing. 
but he did do it. <sighs> Impatience. Uh, this is a weakness for a lot of us. <laughs> I don't like to wait. Do you? I don't like to wait for a doctor. If I have a 10 o'clock appointment, I'd like to see the doctor at 10 o'clock, not 11 o'clock. You know, my time is valuable too. Um, you know, but we wait. I don't like to wait at lights. I, this morning, uh, Barbara's not with me and she would have reminded me. For some reason, I th was thinking I needed to leave at 8 o'clock. Well, it's, you know, about an hour, 20 minutes here, so <laughs> I should have left earlier than that. I like to get places about a half hour before I'm supposed to start. So as I get in the car and I'm taking off, I'm thinking, why did I wait till 8 o'clock? I was up early. Um, that's not a problem. But, you know, I hit every light between here and Rochester. You know, doesn't that frustrate? You know, the timing's got to be terrible. I mean, just one after another, after another. Come on, Lord, help me out. Well, sometimes, you know, God does delay to teach us to wait. Um, you know, we all need more patience. I don't pray for patience. I know people that pray for patience. I, you know, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> But I do think I do need to be more patient. We do need to wait on the Lord. You'd be surprised how many times. Do a study sometime on wait on the Lord. Have you noticed that God is, is, tells us to wait, but he's, he's never late? He's always on time. But his timing often is not the same as our timing. Uh, we become a little impatient with God and we want him to hurry up and God do something now. And God says, yeah, just wait. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's kind of an interesting progression. They shall mount with wings as eagles. They shall run, then they walk. I learned to walk before I learned to run. And I learned to run before I learned, well, I haven't learned to fly yet. But uh, it's kind of a reverse. And somewhat when you're saved, you know, you kind of are in that flying mode. Everything's exciting. But the Christian life is primarily lived by walking, not running, not even flying. There are high points, and I understand you had a re your own in-house revival this week, and those are kind of high points, but the Christian life is not just the high points. The Christian life is lived out as walking, and to walk with God, you have to wait on God. The two go hand in hand. Well... Saul's impatient. We know that already. Then in then insensitivity. Leaders have to be sensitive to their people. Uh, you, you cannot drive sheep. Uh, when I was a boy, we had our neighbors that had sheep. And sheep have to be led. Uh, they, they will not. They're not good at being driven. You have to have help to kind of corral them to get them to go anywhere or direction. But leading, they will follow. Um, sheep are not really bright animals. And um, when I was a kid, we used to do all kinds of bad things to the sheep. I probably shouldn't even tell you that, but we would do, I would do things like uh, go in the barn and go, boom! And the sheep would all run and they panic. They get scared. You could, you could put a board up and get one sheep to jump over it. And every sheep would keep jumping even after you pulled the board out. Uh, it's just, you know, they're just, well, leaders have to be sensitive to people. Uh, you can't take people beyond where they, you know, 
where they are. I mean, they need to see the need. So what does King Saul do? Uh, King Saul is kind of stuck at uh, the Gibeah. His son Jonathan says to his armor bearer, let's, let's go up and see if God won't do something. And sure enough, they get to a, a garrison of the Philistines and they attack. The Philistines panic, thinking there must be a large band. So probably 40 men or so, Jonathan very courageously with his armor bearer charges in and wins a victory. That starts the battle and pretty soon the whole battle is going well. And Saul gives a command that says no one is to eat until the victory is won. Anyone that eats will be put to death. Well, Jonathan didn't hear the command and came across the honeycomb and dipped his staff in the honeycomb and ate some honey. So Saul finds out what's going on and brings Jonathan in before him and he's going to kill his own son because he violated his command. Now, instead of simply saying, you know what, that was a rash command, I shouldn't have said that, leaders have to be careful what you say. Now, if you're in a home, uh, don't make threats you're not willing to carry out. You know, uh, one more time and I'm going to spank you. Well, you better spank them after one more time or you're going to be grounded for, you know, a thousand years. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, probably not going to happen. Um, you know, you have to be careful what you you have to be careful what you promise too. but threats, especially you need to be careful um, that you don't say something that you're not willing to do. Saul uh, was willing to kill, but the, the army said, hey, no, you're not killing. He's the hero of the battle. You're not about to kill him. And so Saul does back off, but he doesn't admit being wrong. He doesn't say, you know what, that was a rash command. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. I take it back. Uh, instead, of that, he doesn't admit his mistakes. Leaders have to be willing to admit their mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Um, you know, you're going to say something you shouldn't have said or do something you shouldn't have done and you realize it was a bad decision later on, admit it. You know, in politics, you see this in, in American politics, that American people are very forgiving. Now, it's probably a bad illustration, but I think of Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, you know, messed up royally in his first term and got reelected the second term. And in the meantime, he really didn't say he was sorry, but it's amazing. Richard Nixon, uh, you know, you could go through a lot of politicians. Uh, the American people are very forgiving. People are generally pretty forgiving if you admit your mistakes, if you're honest. But if you try to cover it up or justify it, then that won't work. So what happens at Gibeah? Uh, well, he makes that rash vow. He's even going to kill his son. The word of God says in Ecclesiastes 5.2, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thy heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou, and thou art on earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. So be careful what you promise. Be careful what you threaten. Uh, Saul wasn't. Admit your mistakes when you, ha when you make them, and then move on. Insincerity was another problem for King Saul. Uh, this one shows up at, at, in chapter 15. This is the battle with the Amalekites. Uh, Saul's giving the order, 
by Samuel, you're to kill all the Amalekites. This, these are evil people. They need to be destroyed. It's God's judgment. You need, this is what you need to do. Destroy all of their merchandise. Saul spares the king, spares some of the spoils, and kind of sets it aside, and he thinks it's all okay. It's, you know, it's all taken care of. So what happens? And Well, instead of enslaving them all, he uh, saves some. Samuel comes and says, have you done what God told you to do? And Samuel says, all that the Lord has done, I've done. Uh, Saul says, then what is this bleeding of the sheep? And I hear the mooing of the cows. What is that? Oh, well, uh, we saved some for sacrifice to the Lord. Total lie. And he repeats it. You'll read the story a couple times. He says, I've done all that God told me to do. Uh, always be careful about making that kind of statements. Every once in a while, I hear people say, God told me to do something. Uh, God speaks through his word today. And, you know, but Saul was told clearly, this is what you're to do. He didn't do it. So instead of saying, you're, no, you're right, I didn't do it, he, he blames the people. He said, you know, it's those people that, that you know, they, they force me to save some of them. They, it's their fault. Don't blame problems on other people. <laughs> admit your own mistakes, admit your limitations. Don't, uh, don't claim to always be perfect. Uh, Saul didn't. Saul wanted to hide it up and then he blamed the people. And, well, you can read the story. Whoops. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep and mine ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? And Saul said, uh, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen for sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Well, we've done all of that. But what about the king? Now, the Amalekites are going to be a problem to Israel. Uh, Haman, in the story of Esther, was a Malachite. So they're going, to, they're going to be a continue. Because of his disobedience, there are consequences all the way down the line in Israel's history. What was the problem there? A fear of man bringeth a snare. Was Saul pressured? I'm not sure he was, but uh, it's very clear that fear was a, a major problem for King Saul. Insecurity. He simply is in, in insincerity. He's just not sincere. He, you'll read of him chasing David later on. And three times, I think it is, he says, I have sinned. But he doesn't really repent. He doesn't stop doing what he was not supposed to do. Isolation. Isolation was what led, that led to. Saul progressively cut himself off from others, and from the council. Um, because of his disobedience, he was cut off from Samuel. God has said, your, your kingdom will not last. and going to anoint another one. And that happened. Uh, David comes on the scene. He is that chosen one. Samuel's already anointed him. Uh, when he slay, slays Goliath, uh, Saul doesn't want him to leave the court. He said, boy, you're, you're it. Uh, you know, you're our hero. And then when the women start singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands, Saul becomes jealous. Now, what should he have done? Well, he should have prepared his successor. 
I commend your pastor for, for uh, preparing the next pastor, Pastor Caleb. I mean, there was work that was involved, and it was, it, you know, it was a project that was, you know, it's still a project and work, but he's now the pastor, and he, Pastor Legault is the assistant pastor. Saul could have had that kind of blessing and success to see his, his student succeed, but instead he becomes jealous, and he begins to do some strange things. Uh, he attempts to take David's life. David has to flee. Then Saul spends much of his later years chasing David in the wilderness without success um, because God's hand is on him. And you, know, you can't fight the purpose of God. Instead of cooperating with God, instead of doing what God wanted him to do, Saul becomes increasingly isolated. He uh, even accuses his son of being a traitor. Uh, he... he progressively becomes more and more isolated. Uh, the isolation uh, seems to have roots in fear, fear of being challenged, fear of being honest and open, fear of the opinion of others. Leaders face that, uh, and that can be a threat. Can you handle somebody challenging you, um, questioning a decision? Uh, I once had a man come to my office. He said on Sunday morning, just before service, which is the worst time to do this, by the way, for a pastor, just before service, he said, I need to talk to you this week. And I, you know, you spend all week thinking about what the guy's on his heart. And usually it's a complaint. <clears throat> so he came in and he said, Pastor, I don't think you pray enough. <laughs> and, um, you know, I... I I thought to myself, now, how in the world would you know that? And then as he's talking, I didn't say anything, but as he's talking, I said, now, exactly how much prayer is enough? Then I thought about it and said, you know what? I bet there's not a pastor in the state that would say, I pray enough. Anybody got this down so pat that you said, boy, I, prayer is one thing I'm covered. So, it was, you know, so... He kept talking, and he said, I have a book I'd like you to read. It was a book by E.M. Bounds on prayer. And it's a wonderful book. So thankfully, I made the right decision by not, not blasting him, which I was tempted to do. But just listen and say, okay, I, I can work on that. That's something I can read, and I'll do that. And I did, and I was challenged, and it helped me grow. Well, that's how you respond to critics. Now, not all criticism is right. Some people will come and criticize you for little stupid things. Um, one of my deacons at West Seneca, uh, when I first came there, moved to California, died this last week. Wonderful man, but every week he would write me a note of what I did wrong on Sunday. You know, you didn't announce this enough. You didn't press this enough. You, you know, um, it was always something. So I finally had to sit down and talk to him. He says, don't I ever do anything right? And he was kind of horrified that I had gotten the wrong impression. He was just trying to help me. So not every criticism is valid, but you can learn from your critics. Saul cut himself off from that. He wasn't going to listen. And as a result, he started losing his leadership. And that's what will happen when a person doesn't listen. Then uh, the idea of uh, fear of being honest and open. 
Saul was not willing to admit his weaknesses or his mistakes. I told you when he chased David a couple of times, David spared his life and he said, I have sinned, you know, come back home. But he never really repented. It was kind of a false thing. Uh, he never really admitted the problem that he had. And then the fear of opinion of others. What are other people thinking? Uh, leaders can sometimes think people are plotting against them, and that's what Saul did. He became increasingly uh, isolated. Here's how he states that in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 8, that all of you conspired against me, and there's none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse, and there is none that is sorry for me, or showeth unto me that my son should both stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. See, nobody feels sorry for me. What, do you really need somebody to feel sorry for you? Uh, is life like that? You know, Saul, you, you know, you're, you're showing a weakness, but you won't admit your weakness. You're showing that you're insecure instead of confident. Well, the Bible does give us some advice on this. Two are better than one because they have the reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Uh, it is good to have friends. Uh, everyone should have partners, uh, whether it be marital partner or just a good friend that can hold you accountable, but also can help lift you up when you get down. Uh, everybody has down days. Uh, you will have days of discouragement. That's, that's part of life. But everybody needs somebody. I'm thankful for Barb. Barb has always been a, a, a support to me. Uh, she's always been able to lift me up. My mother was uh, always a good support while she was alive. Uh, she'd, I'd talk to her on Sunday night, usually after I'd go out, call her on the phone and, say, and she'd say, well, how'd you do today? And uh, I would tell her, and she said, well, I'm, I'm sure they enjoyed you. And she was always very positive. She was always my prayer warrior. Uh, I've had other people as well that are, are that kind of people that help me when I'm down. Saul cut himself off from all those people. And as a result, when he was down, nobody could help him. Nobody could confront him and say, Saul, you got a bad attitude here. You're not doing what's right. You need to straighten up. Uh, the Word of God says... Ecclesiastes 4.12, and if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. For a three-fold cord is not eagerly, quickly broken. Three-fold cord brings God into the picture. Um, you have a friend, but you also have God. And that gives you strength. Whoops. Isolation becomes a problem. Whoops. Excuse me, i got to go to the next one. Instability. Saul increasingly becomes unstable. He does strange things. He, he has a real enemy, the Philistines, and he spends most of his time chasing after David, who should have been his ally. Um, he tries to kill David on a couple of occasions. David has to flee. Um, David becomes kind of an outlaw. He's out in the wilderness. Saul chases him, he hears rumors, he's here, and he gathers his army and chases after him here. They chase after him there, chase it. You know, just, just kind of strange decisions. Um, 
The Word of God says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Um, when a man of God falls into sin, there is instability that follows. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Saul was not stable. Saul was up and down, up and down, up and down. And as a result, he ends up losing his kingdom. And think of some of the things he did. When he hears that the priest at Nob had helped David, he orders his soldiers to go out there and kill them all. He killed priest. And the, the priest really didn't do anything wrong. They, they, David came to him and said, I'm on the king's business and I need help. Uh, do you have any food? He said, all I only have was showbread. So they give him the showbread. He eats the showbread. Do you have any weapons? The only thing we have is Goliath's sword. I'm going to take that sword then. And he goes off. with, And that's the help they gave him. They thought they were helping the king. But Saul doesn't listen to what happened. He just gives the order and has them killed. By the way, the strangest thing of that story is, well, we'll talk about David another time. Takes the sword of Goliath. Where does he go? Gath, of all places. So kind of a strange decision, too. Well, what happened to him? Saul's life ends tragically. Here's a man with great potential who, by the end of his life, his life has fallen apart. The one thing he was supposed to do is deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. He totally failed in that. The final battle with the Philistines, Saul lost. So the people are in worse shape at the end of his 40-year reign than they were at the beginning of his 40-year reign. So he is a complete failure as far as the job is concerned. He ends up losing his army. Uh, they're defeated in chapter 31, 1 Samuel. He lost his honor. Um, he lost his crown. He lost his life. There's some question on how Saul died in, in uh, 1 Samuel. It says one thing. In 2 Samuel, it seems to say another. 1 Samuel, he's described as falling on his sword. In the second, second Samuel, a uh, Malachi comes and says that he saw him wounded and Saul begged him to kill him and he killed him. So, which is right. Well, I will take 1 Samuel and assume that the Amalekite lied. Uh, that's simply the simplest answer. Um, the Bible does record lies. First lie in the Bible was, you shall not surely die. <laughs> Satan said that. So I think, the, I think the messenger lied about it, but... What a, what a tragic thing. I mean, uh, before the battle, he wants advice from God. So where does he go? He goes to a witch. I mean, here's a guy who starts out as a servant of God who ends up talking to a witch. Now, what happened there? Uh, did a demon impersonate Samuel because the witch calls up somebody and Samuel comes up? Or did God allow Samuel to speak directly? I don't know. I, I suspect it's a second. But the message is, you're going to die. Now, having had that message, what should Samuel, Saul have done? Well, he should have got right with God. This should have been a big prayer meeting. 
This is a time when you get on the altar and say, man, Lord, I've blown it. And even though your judgment's coming, I ask for your forgiveness. But Saul doesn't do that. Saul goes out to battle as before, and he ends up getting totally defeated. Uh, he ends up probably killing himself. You see how what a sad story that is? Here is a guy that could have been one of the Bible heroes who ends up being an illustration of failure. Well, he lost everything. Now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. That was said to Samuel way back in chapter 13. So he's had a lot of years to repent, to turn around. Repentance is simply you're going the wrong way, so you stop and go back the other way. You say, I'm wrong, and you turn around. Saul never did that. He never turned back. All right, who's his successor? Well, it's David. What did David do when he sinned his great sin? He confessed it. He asked for forgiveness. Psalm 51, Psalm 32. Are both Psalms written during that time period. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Uh, he prays in there, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That's possible. I think Saul had the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit took, was taken from him. So we've got that illustration, Psalm 51. Cast me not away from thy presence. Um, you know, Saul isolates himself pushes himself away I, further you know he, he feels embattled and ends up losing everything David on the other hand was restored so here's the warning take heed brethren lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God but exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin so the warning is you are a leader. God wants you to be successful. But you have to be careful about these areas. You've got to be careful about becoming isolated. You've got to be careful about being insincere. You have to be careful about being inconsistent. You, you have to guard your heart against bitterness. Uh, all of us can become bitter. Everybody has bad things that happens to them. You, you know, somebody didn't do right by you and you're mad about it. Get over it. Get over it. Don't let that fester. If you do, it'll destroy you. Saul was destroyed from the inside out. David was saved from the inside out. That's the difference. Father, we thank you for the word of God and the lessons that are there for us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you have spoken to our hearts today. And Father, all of us are leaders and all of us want to be successful. Nobody starts out saying, I want to be a failure. And so help us, help us to remember the lessons of the word of God and the warning of King Saul's life. Thank you again, Lord, for all that you do for us. Bless the morning service now to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.